Again, Happy New Year, everybody. How's your year going so far? <laughs> Had a headache all year? Is that it? Yeah, all right. I appreciate you all coming out this morning. Obviously, you're the spiritual ones, so look around. Just make a note. Just keep that in the back of your mind. God certainly is. Kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't go home and tell people. Don't write me. You know, it's funny. I think this might be the very first year I've ever preached on New Year's Day. And, and I was thinking, well, that's impossible because I've been doing this longer than four years. It, shouldn't it just come, or seven years, shouldn't it come up more every seven years? But I usually get someone else to. That's what it is. Like, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, it's so nice to be together. And as we head into 2023, there's so much to look forward to. And... I don't know about you guys, but I always feel like this is the best part of the year. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas holiday. But this first chunk, this first fiscal quarter is, in my opinion, the best season of the year. Because for me, and maybe you're the same, between now and, and the end of the quarter, you know, now and the beginning of April, what I usually do is I, I typically kind of hone my weekly disciplines and try to make them a little bit more efficient, my Bible study, kind of food prep and training and all that stuff. I, I, like to, I like to try to get myself more efficient as I kind of move through the year. I try to get all my outdoor projects done um, because it's a little cooler out, so you can go outside and you know, clean the patio and the lawn furniture and wash and wax the car and stuff like that. And really, this time of year is the easiest time of year to forget just how hot it is in the summer. Because when you're, when you're walking around in January, February, March, it's, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's really not that hot. It's really not that bad. And then June comes around, and it feels like the sky drops about two miles until it's right there in your face. The sun is right there. But I also like this time of year because it feels, it feels so optimistic. And I don't have any scientific research on this. But it seems to me that people are in a better mood this time of year. People are in a more hopeful mood right after the holidays. It seems that at the beginning of every new year, people are, are more motivated to take on new things, to take on new self-improvement projects. For example, you know how you've been eating nonstop since the day after Halloween when you started on the candy, right? It's just, it's just been this ginormous bag or bowl of candy in your house that doesn't exist the rest of the year, and then you just keep on going and going and going until basically last night or early this morning, and you you go to bed and you go, I'll never do that again. And that's how you really feel. And then we decide, a lot of, a lot of us decide this time of year is the time of year that we're going to finally, and then just fill in your finally blank. Finally, shed all those unwanted pounds that somehow we've been accumulating since the end of high school. That's one of the things, you know, so when we do that, what do we do? We get the weight loss apps and we download the YouTube videos and we all join the gym right? You join the gym and you sign a year contract and, and the guy selling you the contract, his eyes just have those little dollar signs in them because, you know, that's how it works at gyms. You, you go to Weight Watchers, you go to Nutrisystem or you buy a Noom or you do some kind of other weight loss gimmick and, and you totally commit yourself to brand new health and fitness goals, which usually last for between a week and maybe a month. And so it's a time that we also begin those, those projects that we've always wanted to start, you know, those things we should do, like take up piano lessons or, or golf lessons or, or guitar lessons 
or even try to learn a new language. Has anyone tried to do that, tried to learn a new language? One you've always wanted to learn. I'll be working on Spanish for the 20th year running. Still, still not very far, but we try to get on a budget. At the beginning of the year, we think about that. We want to pay off our credit cards. We, we save up for vacation. We think about home renovation. We give more to the church. We give more to the church. We give ourselves more breathing room. We, oh, I need a little margin. I've been running too hard. And, and we do all of that stuff while also endeavoring to spend less time at work and more time with our families. And, and all of that stuff is really, really good stuff. You guys know this already. I mean, all of that is really good stuff. But the truth is this, if we can talk for a minute, we're really good at starting these new behaviors, but we are not so good at following through with these new behaviors. Now, there is some data on this. Um, a recent study at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, concluded that fewer than 8% of people who make New Year's resolutions keep New Year's resolutions. Fewer than 8%, over 92%, do not keep resolutions. And while this fact is the business model for every gym in town, right? You get a contract and people paying monthly, and then nobody shows up. They show up for basically the first two, three weeks in January, then that's it. Which, by the way, if everybody who joined a gym showed up at a gym, you couldn't work out in the gym. There'd be too many people there. But it doesn't say a lot of good things about our stick to does it? And, and I got to tell you guys, I'm, I'm here to help. I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. I'm here for you guys. I want to help you become more successful in your resolutions, but I am positive that you would not enjoy me nagging you about your health and fitness goals because I have never met anybody who's happy with me nagging them about their diet and exercise, including members of my family, so I don't do that. But there is something that we can do this new year, this 2023, that will sustain us throughout the year and really massively improve our lives forever. As we've been talking about for the past few months, with COVID behind us, and a new, more people-centered environment around us. Have you seen this ever since the pandemic ended? We all kind of want to be together again. And we want to go to lunch. We want to go to dinner. We want to go to friends' houses. We enjoy being around people. Like, we really miss that. We are very social creatures. And this year, we're really well-positioned at Hammock Street to make a huge impact on our area. It's interesting. Across Every Christian movement in the United States, every denomination, every movement group, all of those different places, even though we all have stylistic differences and doctrinal differences, there is still one truth in the Christian community that still unifies all of us. And here's that truth. The truth is what we believe, what we do following Jesus is the only solution available to the division and the distraction and the dreariness that has overwhelmed our faith, overwhelmed our nation. See, it's our faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the only cure. And, and it's our job to tell people about that, and it's our job to share that with people, not beating them over the head, but sharing the truth in love. And it's our goal this year to do everything we can as a community, as the body of Christ, to be Jesus's hands and feet, which means to be Jesus's personal, in-person representative. Uh, a lot of people have said, 
you know, you might be the only Jesus that anyone ever gets to meet. And that's huge, okay? You might be the only representative of Jesus that they meet. And we get to be right here in this area in South Florida, which is what we call an unchurched region, where you guys know if you've traveled through the Deep South in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, there's churches like every two feet. Like everywhere you go, there's churches everywhere. Not here. It doesn't work that way in South Florida. A lot of us have to drive a long way just to get here. But God has put us here for a purpose, So in 2023, together, we can do something about what's going on in our world. And for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about what we can do as a community of Jesus followers to make a difference that matters right here in our area, in Boca Raton and all the neighborhoods and cities surrounding Boca Raton. That's what we're going to be doing. And along the way, hopefully... We're going to obtain the clarity and the focus that will be necessary so that we can succeed with all our other resolutions and all our efforts to change our life and other lives for the better. Does that sound like something everybody would be interested in this year? Yeah? Good. Well, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this new year, 2023. Thank you for bringing us through 2022. Thank you for the blessings and the challenges that have grown our faith and that have drawn us closer to you. God, we're excited to see what you will do in our lives here in 2023. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a drink. All right, so in this series, we're going to set a foundation upon one chapter of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take the principles that we learned from this chapter and we're going to apply them to our lives over the coming year. So we're going to start off by reading this entire chapter through, beginning to end. It's only 11 verses. And then we'll go back and we'll build upon the things that we see in order to get us to the place where God wants us. All right, that's what we do with the scripture. Now, the scripture I'm talking about is the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. But before we read our, pra- our passage, what we usually like to do is, is get some context. So the book of Nehemiah is found in the portion of the Hebrew Bible that is known as the writings. So it's basically the law, that's the Torah, and then, the, then there's the prophets, and then there are the writings. So Song of Solomon, Psalms, all of that is found, is found in the writings. It's called the Ketuvim. So Nehemiah... It's interesting. It's not really a Bible story as much as it is a first-person memoir that chronicles the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. So, one question. Why did the walls of Jerusalem need to be rebuilt? Okay. Well, they needed rebuilding because toward the end of the 500s BC, so you're talking 500 years before Jesus, the Babylonians, remember that's modern-day Iraq, captured the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah is what we refer to the southern part of Israel as. Now, after the Babylonians, under King Artaxerxes, invaded and conquered Judah, they deported Judah's residents. They got rid of all the, all the wealthy people and, and all the scholars and all the, all the doctors, things like that. They deported Judah's residents, the Jewish people, back to Babylon, back to Iraq, to serve the Babylonians. Okay, so that was pretty far away, but they took the best and brightest and they imported them to their own country so they could work for, serve the Babylonians. And the Hebrews, the Jews, remained exiled in Babylon for 70 years. 
70 years. And what's interesting is we actually know a bunch of things that took place during that period of captivity. In particular, you guys know some of the events that are recorded in the book of Daniel. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And the fiery furnace and all that. That all comes from the book of Daniel. That took place during the Babylonian exile. Also, during the Babylonian exile, the temple in Jerusalem was shut down and partially destroyed, okay? Then, in about 539 BC, the Persians come along. Who are the Persians? The Iranians. So you've got Iran-Iraq. It's, it's always been this way. So the Persians, under Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonians and then permitted the Jews to go back to Judah. So he said, you guys, we kidnapped you 70 years ago. You're talking a few generations by this point. Go back home. You all can go back home. Now, I want to take a quick tangent here because this is, this is really cool. This has to be one of the most jaw-dropping prophecies in the entire Old Testament. Listen to this. 750 years before Jesus was born. All right, so just give yourself a perspective here. The United States is roughly 250 years old, so three times longer than the United States has been around. That's a long time, right? 750 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah predicted that somebody named Cyrus would enter a decree to free the Jews. Don't miss this. 150 years before Cyrus even lived, Isaiah called Cyrus by name. You guys want to try a little thought experiment here? What is the name of your descendant, pick any one of them, who will live 150 years from now? Go ahead. You can't, that's crazy, right? Called him by name, and he provided details of how Cyrus would serve the Jews. This is really cool. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, Cyrus, God talks to this pagan king, Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. God gave Cyrus the ability to subdue nations before him. He said, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. God chose this pagan king, Cyrus, chose him to do God's work, and he said, I'm choosing you even though you don't believe in me. That's that last piece of that last sentence, though you do not acknowledge me. That's an example of God's sovereignty over all of the nations. Here's what God said of Cyrus a little later in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. Whoa. Isn't that cool? God uses everybody for his own purpose. And from this, we can see that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over everything, including time and space. The fact that it happened in the future, was going to happen in the future, did not make a difference to God. He can use absolutely anyone to accomplish his purpose. Got that? All right, where were we? Ah. Cyrus permitted the Hebrews to return to Judah, and they did. And after a while, hundreds of thousands had gone back but they returned to a Jerusalem in ruins. So the people did their best to rebuild their capital city, but they'd been away so long. You're away at least 70 years. Recovery is not easy after 70 years. When you go away on vacation for two weeks and you come back and your plants are all dead and the goldfish are floating and all that sort of stuff, like that's two weeks. Think about 70 years that they didn't take care of the city. They destroyed the city. So so the people did their best, but they were having a tough time recovering. And not only that, they came back to a Jerusalem that was vastly different than the Jerusalem they left. 
Because again, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, deported all of the best and all of the brightest of Jerusalem. He deported the successful people and the wealthy people and the landholders, and then he redistributed all their land among the poor, thereby improving the lives of the people who stayed, improving the lives of the people who weren't exiled. But when the Jews returned, the Jewish people that had remained, who now had all this land and all this wealth and this better life, they weren't thrilled to see them coming back. Like, what are you doing here? So Ezra, from the book of the Bible bearing his name, was the earliest among the Jews to return, and he returned and started the rebuilding effort. And then about 90 years, and by the way, listen to these time frames. When we think in America, we think of our time frames are about three months or six months, maybe a year. Uh, I was just talking to a couple of guys. We were talking about, we were talking about the football season, and you know, you get a new coach, and if he doesn't win in one year, everybody's screaming for him to be fired. Like one year, one season. These people wait decades and decades and centuries to go. So 90 years after that, after Ezra shows up, Nehemiah receives word about his ancestral home, and that's where our story begins. So the events in Nehemiah take place after the Babylonian captivity had ended. And Nehemiah's story is a story of hard work and discipline and vision. It's a story of all kinds of useful things. It's a really interesting story that we can use in our lives today. It's a powerful story. And so to set us up for today's question, we're going to read through the chapter. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't, of course, all the verses will be on the screen. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire, which is the worst way to burn something. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. So Nehemiah sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, for the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me... And obey my commands. And then, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your hand, great strength, by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. All right, so now we're going to go back and we're going to see what there is to see in these verses. So back to verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, 
in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. All right, so this is, this is just straight facts here happening. What's going on here? Again, this is not a parable. This is not a metaphor. This is not a made-up story. This is a real historical account. Nehemiah was a Jew. We don't know whether he had ever actually even been to Judah. He was born in captivity. He probably had never been to Judah. He was born in exile, and, and Judah was 750 miles away, and it really wasn't easy to get a flight back then. Southwest was in charge of the whole thing. It was impossible to... No, I mean, you couldn't just travel around like that. It, would take, it was a trip of a lifetime. Few people did it. So the story takes place during the month of Kislev. Kislev is a late autumn, early winter month on the Hebrew calendar. Now, Nehemiah gives his location as the city of what? Susa. Susa is known as the citadel of Persia. Remember, Persia is Iran. What's a citadel? A citadel is a fortified area of the town or city. Remember, these cities had to have walls. They had to have fortification. They had to protect themselves because everybody was always conquering each other and trying to take over each other. So in that day, Susa was the seat of power for all of Persia. So while Nehemiah was working, Nehemiah lived in, in Susa. He was born there. While he was working in Susa for King Artaxerxes, here's what happens. Hanani, verse 2, one of my brothers, not his blood brother, but his ethnic brother, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So by this point in time, the Jews are beginning to emigrate back to their homeland. And Hanani, a fellow Israelite, he'd come up to Susa from Judah. So he made that trip. And Nehemiah says, hey, you're down there? What's going on with the relocation? It's been going on for 90 years already. What's going on? How's it going down there? Here's how he answers. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in trouble. Like, they've come back, and it is not going very well for them. Great trouble and disgrace, okay? Things are bad. Jerusalem is defenseless. The city wall has been knocked down. It's in ruins. The gates have been burned. We're not able to keep any enemies out, any bad guys out. And so upon hearing this horrible news about his ethnic homeland, which he'd never been to, Nehemiah, when he heard those things, he cried. He sat down and he wept, right? It's kind of like not the tearing up, crying, but the <laughs> sobbing, you know, heaving, crying, wept. For days he mourned and he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard the bad news, even though he'd never, ever been to Jerusalem, the news about its horrible condition broke his heart. So this wasn't just some random report about a place that he'd never been. Now, we hear random reports every day if you read the news. You hear stories about bad things that have happened in places you've never been, and most of us go like this, huh, it's pretty much all you get, right? If you have no connection to somewhere, you know, something happens in Duluth, and you go, wow, Duluth, hmm, where's that? Okay, yeah. What's for breakfast? I mean, you don't think about it, but this is his ancestral home. For him, this was tragic, tragic news. And when he'd heard it, he just lost it. And so he starts this long prayer to God. So this is where we go in verse 5. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. We Jews pray like that. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam. It's blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You see the similarity there in the translation? King of the universe, King of heaven, our awesome God. That's how, that's how you pray. And then he does this, which is really interesting. He, he reminds God of God's promise. 
Like he reminds God, oh, by the way, God, in case you forgot the promise you made to us, here's what he said, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. God, in case you forgot, I'm reminding you here, remember, you're the God who keeps his promises, right, God? That's what he does. So he keeps going with this. Let your ear be attentive, right? God, you're the God who keeps his promises. Please hear my prayer. Listen to me. Oh, and by the way, now that I've got your attention, on behalf of all my people, we're going to confess our sins to you. So Nehemiah takes it upon himself to confess the sins of all the Jewish people. Here's what he says in verse 7. He says, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. We violated all the Mosaic laws. Remember the instruction you gave your servant. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you people. God, I know that we deserve this, is what he said. I know we deserve to be thrown out of our land. We disobeyed you. We reneged on the deal that our ancestors established with you. Just like you said to Moses, if we're ever unfaithful, you'll scatter our people throughout the world. And Nehemiah was writing from Susa because he was one of those people who was scattered throughout the world. Then Nehemiah continues to recap for God. He continues to go over with God, God's own promise that God had already made. But remember, God, when you said, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, even if your exiled people are at the ends of the earth, you'll bring us all back. You'll gather us. You'll bring us to the place that you have chosen, which is what makes the the nation of Israel so important to the Jewish people. That's the place. That's the place they started. That's the place they were kicked out of. That's the place they're coming back to. Do you know that the Jewish people have never lasted more than six generations in any place they've been sent to? Six generations. They've been sent, to, been sent to the Middle East. They've been sent to Europe. They've been sent to Spain, you know, that southern part of Europe. Never, never more than six generations. Nehemiah reminds God, you promised if the people will return to you, you'll gather them back and you'll give them back their land. And then Nehemiah closes out this prayer with a specific request. Here's what he says in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer to the prayer of this servant and the prayers of all your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this hand. In other words, Lord, hear my prayer and make me successful in this. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Nehemiah is a Hebrew born in exile who notwithstanding the fact that he was a Hebrew born in exile, he rose to a prominent position as the king's cupbearer. That, that's, a, that's a secure job. The king's cupbearer is the last person standing between the poisoner and the king. It's a dangerous job, but if you survive it, the king really likes you. And if you don't survive it, well, he just finds another cupbearer. But he rises to a prominent position, and it was a position that enjoyed a lot of benefits because when you're the cupbearer, guess where you get to live? In the palace. Guess what you get to eat? the good food. You get to sleep indoors on a, probably a soft bed, different than a lot of your people. It's a very secure living. And if you have that kind of security, you never need to leave that kind of security. You have that job for your whole life because the only thing that can get you fired is if you die drinking whatever you were going to serve the king, right? It's interesting. He had no need to ever leave his job, and yet he put his job and he put his life on the line because he approached the king of Persia, and he made a request. Now, we don't have kings 
And even the kings that do exist in the world are mostly symbolic. But back in those days, you don't approach the king. You don't dare approach the king. You don't dare make requests of the king. The king does all the approaching. The king does all the requesting. And if you don't remember that rule, you probably die. But Nehemiah asked the king. He said, king, would you return us to our ancestral home and help our people rebuild our holy city and reestablish your presence in the holy land? So you have to ask yourself this question. Nehemiah had a very comfortable life, and it was a country he'd never been to. And probably his parents had never even been there. He, it was just, there was no reason. So why would he risk his life and his livelihood? Why would he pick up his family and move that 750 miles and go to a new strange place where life would certainly be more difficult than his life was in Susa? And the reason is because his heart was broken by the plight of his people. Because the news of the wretched state of Jerusalem had broken his heart and he knew that he had to do something about it. He was motivated. And then to end the chapter, here's what Nehemiah does. He sort of punctuates his intentions with an emphatic statement. Here's what he says. I was cupbearer to the king. This is just a formal ending. He's basically saying, I'm making all these prayers. I'm asking you for all these things. I don't have to do this. I have a job. I have a lifetime appointment in the palace. I get to eat all the good food. I get to live in a nice place. My life is very cushy and comfortable. I am the cupbearer for the king. He's saying, listen, I'm telling you, I'm asking this. I don't have to do this. This is like a formal ending on Nehemiah's request. It's actually, it's called a valediction, right? When you say, dear so-and-so, it's a salutation. At the end of it, it's a valediction, okay? I, I always think of it as the way a lawyer tells another lawyer what he needs to do. Like when I used to get to sign demand letters, I'd say, you know, you owe us, you owe my client $4,000, and if you don't pay it by Thursday, blah, 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 and then I write at the end, please govern yourself accordingly. I used to love to write, please govern yourself accordingly, because you feel like such a tough guy, and lawyers always want to feel like tough guys, but none of them are, but it's a thing, you know, please govern yourself accordingly, you know, it's one of those things, and so he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So that's our Bible passage for today. And to sum it up, it's a story of a man who had reached his breaking point. A man who had reached the place where his heart was just broken, and he couldn't take it anymore. He reached the point where he realized that while he probably figured, eh, I'll probably go back to my ancestral home, he knew that the time to go back was now. He could no longer sit idly by. He had to do something about it. And that's the topic we're going to be talking about for the next two weeks coming up. The destruction of Jerusalem and its wretched, broken-down condition broke Nehemiah's heart. And he knew that it was time for action. And my question for all of us, for our Hammock Street community, at the beginning of this new year, this year of 2023, is what breaks your heart? When you look around our community... When you look around our neighborhoods, when you look around our area, when you look around our county, when you look at the economy, when you look at the schools, when you look at our families, when you look at our children, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for you, and it'll be different for every one of us, you need to ask yourself, what's the thing that catches my attention? What's the thing that stirs in me this emotional response? What is it that breaks your heart? 
What's the one thing that when you're spending a quiet moment, it just keeps coming into your head over and over and over again? What's the one thing you can't get out of your heart, you can't get out of your mind? What's the one thing that keeps drawing you back in? What's the one thing that is haunting you? What's the one thing that is possibly so overwhelming? And even though you've kind of been ignoring it, you try to not pay attention to it, you're busy, you've got stuff to, to do, you're saying, ah, I'll probably never deal with this, but it's out there. But it won't go away. What's that thing for you? What's the thing that breaks your heart? It's a tough question. And it's a potentially dangerous question because it might mean you have to change something about what you're doing. And you might not want to do that. But as we head into the new year, the time when we typically focus on only attempting to better ourselves, what if we also ask the question, what should we do to better our world? What should be done in our world? Because here is a truism. If you really want to become a better person, it's not about health and fitness. It's not about how many languages you speak. It's not about any of that stuff. If you really want to become a better person, you need to do something. So this year, to make our world a better place, what can we do? See, as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus who have gone to God and said, Heavenly Father, listen, I understand. I know I'm a sinner. I know I violate your law over and over again. I know I do it even when I'm not paying attention, when I'm not aware of what I've done. I know it. I know that I need a Savior. And we've gone to God and we've said, I know I know who you are and I know that you love the world and you love us and out of your love, you sent Jesus, God the Son, as that Savior. For those of us who said, God, I turn from my sin. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to I go to Jesus. I want to accept the fact that he paid the penalty for my sin with his life but came back from the dead because he had no sin. And he promises to come back one day and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. I want to follow him with my life. If you've done that, every one of us who's done that, even though we're not capable individually of changing the whole world, we all have the potential to change a small part of our world or a part of someone else's world. Let's do something about it. If you're a Jesus follower, today's challenge should be exactly what motivates you. It should be second nature. Why? Because Jesus told us that people who actively follow him make things better. In fact, you can't actively follow Jesus if you're not trying to make the place where you live and the place that you work or the people with whom you associate better. That's our job is to make it all better. This is a central theme of Jesus' message. Jesus taught our devotion to God is measured in terms of our devotion to others. Unlike all of the other religions in the world who are always looking up, God, how can I please you? How can I please you? How can I please you? Jesus has said, I've taken care of that. I love you people. I have forgiven you. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Unlike all of the other religions in the world where we ask God to do stuff for us, when it comes to faith in Jesus... If we want God's attention, then we need to pay attention to how we treat other people. Because every person we will ever encounter in our whole lives is made in God's image. And people matter to God. And because people matter to God, people should matter to us as well. Our devotion to God is measured in terms of our devotion to others. Our love for God is equated to our love for others. Jesus said, this is how they will know that you're mine by the love that you have for one another. 
Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, didn't just feel compassion. Jesus acted compassionately. The love that Jesus modeled was not predicated upon the value that society gave to anyone. Jesus modeled love for people that society had thrown away. Jesus taught that people have inherent value. Jesus loved the tax collectors. Jesus loved the Gentiles, which means all the other nations. Jesus loved the centurions, the Roman soldiers. Jesus loved the prostitutes. Jesus loved the drunks. Jesus loved all of them because they were made in God's image. Over the centuries, in the name of Jesus, the faithful have done all sorts of things for all people. The faithful have built hospitals, Baptist Hospital, Mercy Hospital, St. Thomas Hospital, all the hospitals. Jesus' followers have established schools for all people. Jesus' followers have opened orphanages for all people. Jesus' followers have provided shelter for all people. Jesus' followers have offered help to all people. Over history, the Christians were prominent in the abolitionist movement. The Christians played a huge, major role in the civil rights movement. Even in our day, it's been Christians who have elevated the discussion of human trafficking and made it a worldwide cause. Throughout the history of the church, God has stirred the hearts of people and used people to carry out a much grander plan. For Nehemiah, God was the source of his broken heart. And what Nehemiah didn't realize is that God's stirring his heart to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall was part of an even bigger event, an even bigger sequence of events that had started way before Nehemiah and would continue long after him. Ninety years before Nehemiah, God stirred the heart of a man named Zerubbabel, which to me always sounds like a Flintstones name, doesn't it? Right? Barney Zerubbabel? No? God stirred Zerubbabel's heart, and, and he returned to Jerusalem, and he started rebuilding the temple. And then about 14 years before Nehemiah's heart was stirred, God stirred the heart of a man named Ezra, and Ezra returned to Jerusalem to get the temple up and running again. Sort of like doing the finishing work inside, hanging the drywall, stuff like that. And he was there to teach people God's law. And it was after that that God stirred Nehemiah's heart to go back and reestablish that city. And all of that was in preparation for something else that was going to happen. And it wasn't going to happen for 485 years. But 485 years later, when the final Jewish prophet, priest, and king, the man we know as Jesus would walk into that very same city and go to that very same temple and declare his identity to all the people. So this means that the story of Nehemiah is the setup for the entire New Testament. That's why we're studying it here. This Old Testament story sets up the entire New Testament. God sent his son Jesus into the world to do for us that which we couldn't do for ourselves because our sin broke his heart. And as it turns out, Nehemiah's decision to embrace his broken heart was a part of what God was up to the whole time. And Nehemiah had absolutely no idea what would come of it. So I I have to ask you guys or tell you guys, maybe this is what you need to hear. Maybe this is a message you need to hear. Maybe this is a message we all need to hear, that something we do now could have repercussions hundreds of years into the future. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of our decision to answer God's call in our lives and to embrace the burden that God has placed on our hearts. But God knows. 
God knows what's going to happen. And he's calling each one of us, and he's telling us, respond. Respond to me. You guys have to understand, your future could be more impactful than you could ever imagine. But in order to experience it, you have to first figure out what breaks your heart. What's going to be the thing that motivates you? And then when you figure that out, you have to take a step. You have to take a step out in faith. So, here we are at the first service of 2023. And do you know what? It's good if you've resolved to join the gym and focus on your health. And it's good if you've decided that this will be the year that you pay down your, your debt or your credit cards, you pay off your car or even your house, or you start that retirement plan of the 401k. It's good to take time to work on yourself. It's good to sleep more and drive slower and not curse as much. All that stuff is good. But life is about more than those things. Those things aren't meaningful enough to devote your life to. Well, what's your biggest purpose in life? Well, I always drove the speed limit. I've told you guys before, I went to a funeral of a, of a lawyer I used to work for. So he was a really old guy. I was a really young guy. And all they could say was he was a diligent lawyer who always billed his hours. <sighs> yeah, well, what, a, what a great legacy. I mean, they're not meaningful enough to devote your life to. But God has something bigger in store for you. And you can start trying to figure out what that is when you start trying to understand what breaks your heart. See, it's the answer to that question that gives us the place where great things will start. Now, that's a New Year's resolution that you can get excited about. Because if you really want to become a better person, you'll need to do something to make someone's world a better place. That's kind of heavy stuff, right? That's heavy stuff to start a new year with. But don't panic. You don't have to decide immediately what it is. You need to pray about it. Take some time. Pray about it, think about it, ask God how he can use you to do his will. Remember how our Nehemiah passage ended? It ended with Nehemiah saying, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was saying, this is who I am, and this is how I can help address the thing that broke my heart. So let's figure that out for us. Let's figure out what God is moving our hearts to do. That's how we can start to do something about it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for a new year, a clean slate, a new focus where we can work on how you've made us, but also what you would have us do for the world. God, we're excited to see what you'll do in 2023. We have great hope and optimism that we can bring Jesus to our area. So God, give us that strength. Give us that calling. Let us know how we can serve. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that's it for today. I hope to see you next week as we go on to part two of Let's Do Something About It. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year.